Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 124, Catelyn 7 in a Game of Thrones featuring very special guest Clint from the Learn Hands podcast and Laws of Ice and Fire. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And yes, you know, we have more than just two hands on today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> we are more than just left and right. We are other direction. <laughs> I always say I wish I had a hand that came out of my stomach, like an extendable stomach folding hand. And Clint is now that hand. Clint, we're so glad you're here. It's all I've you ever know, wanted to uh, be. Oh, yes. <laughs> Although that would make finding like sweaters really difficult, I think. Mm, true. You could be like Apom, the Pokemon, who has like a hand on the end of his tail. On the butt? No, on the end of his tail. Or tail, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, That's cool. Same area. Uh-uh. Yes. Well, Clint, I know that uh, Pokemon is not really why we brought you here, though. We could talk about that, too. Uh, you guys might have heard us guest on Learned Hands 15th episode, Rhaegar's very, very horny trial. Bonk, mm-hmm. bonk. Uh, bonk, bonk. Uh, but Clint Clint has actually written really extensively about the series from a law angle, from a law lens about Westeros and the social contract going on in Westerosi society, as well as you've done a great legal analysis of the guest right contract and uh, most of all, Tyrion Lannister's Westerosi criminal record. You've written quite a bit about that. I have, as a matter of fact, um, and I wrote a little bit about this trial uh, on my blog, Laws of Ice and Fire. God, I want to say it was two and a half years ago. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah. And then in the sort of intervening time, another former guest of yours, Maester Mary and I, started um, the Learned Hands podcast. We're, we're about to drop our 19th full episode. Um, it's been a lot of fun, actually. We have been trying to find, and I think we've been mostly successful in finding, like, fun law things to talk about in A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> and fun and law are not always uh, synonymous. So it's been it's been great. Yeah. And so I am really, really happy to be on the Girls Gone Canon podcast, a podcast that I have been following since the beginning and is one of my <laughs> absolute favorites. I have always, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be in a Riot Girl band. And ah. I feel like I feel like <laughs> this is the closest thing I will ever get. Wow. Guesting on the Girls Gone wow. Canon podcast. Well, we're really excited to welcome you into the Girls Gone Canon cinematic universe. Yes. The whole Learned Hands crew, we've collected them all. Mm-hmm. No, we're so excited to have you on. This is great. It was a blast coming on for, for the trial. And now it's complete. The circle's complete. <laughs> I love it. Yes, now yeah, you are here to join us. Yeah, the trial episode was like was like the most fun that we've had. Oh my god, it was a blast. Recording that was such, especially because I saved a lot of the script for the week of, and like I read my parts and I just like had to breeze through some of them with you guys, so I got to hear it as you redid it and re-recorded it, and it was just hysterical. You were hysterical. (laughs) Uh, Well, and both of you really helped take it over the top. Appreciate it. Eliana was ridiculous. I had the easiest part. It was great. I just had to go. Uh, we are so excited to have you here, Clint. Do let everyone know here at the top where they can find you on the internet. Um, sure. You can find me on Twitter at Clint W or my website at lawsoficeandfire.com. Or you can find the Learned Hands podcast on any of your podcast platforms. Uh, you can also 
learn more about the podcast at our website, which is westerosbar.org. Yes, it's a fun time. Everyone should join the Westerosi Bar Association. <laughs> yeah. It's cheaper than law school. It's much cheaper. <laughs> and it. I have learned just as much as I would have learned at law school. I think school, so. Personally. I think That's so. True. Same. That's true. It's, it's the same experience, but legally, I don't think we can say that. <laughs> but thankfully, you know, Clint and Mary went through it, not us. <laughs> Bless you. Yeah, don't go to law school. Join the West Rossi Bar Association instead. Maybe it's a maybe it's a step, you know, a a gateway drug. Unfortunately, <laughs> it could be a gateway drug. Could be. Speaking of gateways, we're going to be entering a couple of different places soon on Patreon. Yeah, I'm so excited for our Patreon episode this month. Next week's episode of Catalan 8, I believe that we are going to announce what free city we're traveling to. But yes, Eliana and I will be entering gateways to get over to a free city. We're we're getting slim on them, right? I think we're past the halfway mark or we're close. I think we're past the one-third so, mark, right? Yeah, for sure. We're for sure past the one-third mark. So this could happen. This could Our travels could come to an end eventually. Yes, but before you set off on your travels, we do, of course, have some fun, vacation-esque fun, before the summer. It is our Patreon Discord brunch slash happy hour. This month, we are going to be doing ours in late May, and it is going to be on a Sunday, May 23rd, and this is open to all of our patrons who are on the Discord, $10 and up, Thunder Tier and above. Yeah, we've had a blast doing some uh, some reindeer games, right? Playing some some Jackbox games. But this month, I think we are going to go with a Song of Ice and Fire potluck slideshow presentation theme. Uh, I think we have something cooking, and we will send out a notice to patrons soon on that. So keep an eye out in your inbox. Uh, we, we've had a blast with those. We've just had fun. And we haven't done a slideshow presentation one in a while. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of a blast. Uh, everyone just puts together a quick presentation on a on a topic. And if you're into drinking, everyone has a drink. Or if you're snacking or just hanging out or doodling or doing whatever, it's just a really relaxed, fun couple hours. Unless you're playing Jackbox games and you're playing Survive the Internet, in which it is not fun and you will get canceled. <laughs> but it's still fun. You laugh, but you haven't been canceled by the Girls Gone Canon Discord, Clint. Uh, I mean, the night is young. The night is indeed young. (laughs) Uh, Well, and then of course, one more thing. As you all know, we are not only covering one series here on Girls Gone Canon. We are also covering the His Dark Materials story, universe. So last month's Patreon episode did cover the television series. Uh, We talked about the bottle episode that was lost. In season two, that was never able to be filmed because, you know, as you all know, we we live in unprecedented times. And by that, we mean the entire world, like, shut down last year. (laughs) I think you were all there for it with us. If you've been listening to us for the past 60 episodes, you might recall that there is a pandemic still ongoing 60 episodes later. Yes, it happened during the Jamie episodes. That's all I know about that. But... Oh, wow. Uh, along with that, there is another book series uh, with His Dark Materials. We are covering those once a month as well. Yes, we will be finishing up La Belle Sauvage, which is one of the companion trilogy books. Uh, it's kind of a sequel, prequel, sandwich trilogy, we like to call it. 
and La Belle Sauvage, we are nearing the end of our beautiful trip on the water. So come park the canoe with us. We're going to get, there's some dark stuff ahead in that book. Uh, That book's not young. It's, it's the end of that book is a little dark. So we're excited about it and uh, come check it out before we start up the Amber Spyglass sometime soon. But then that brings us back here to A Song of Ice and Fire. And we did have some emails and tweets of note. Actually, we have two emails this time from the same person. Our good friend Thunderclap messaged us asking, What's the best female equipment of- Sorry, ladies, I'm in the Night's Watch. (laughs) There were some suggestions that Thunderclap volunteered, such as, for example, Sorry, gentlemen, I'm I'm in the Silent Sisters. Sorry, gentlemen, I'm in the Maiden Vault. Sorry, gentlemen, I'm in the Dosh Colleen. Or, sorry, gentlemen, I'm Craster's wife slash daughter. That was, like, escalated worse. (laughs) Uh, It's hard. I, like, at first I was like, ha, and then I was like, wait a second. Uh, uh, Hello, I'm a dead woman, or a mother is a good one. Am I right? Because they're all dead. I don't know. It's fun for a moment. Like, at first I was excited about the I'm in the Night's Watch slash Kingsguard, but then I was like... Oh, but they don't get murdered due to what they present their gender as. And then I remembered Brave Danny Flint, and I was like, this isn't fun anymore for me. So, I don't know. Interesting. They just get murdered for their bad opinions, which, honestly, could be better. Yeah. Yeah, that, that those are all really good points. I was like, uh, the only one I could come up with is, like, I'm in the Knots Watch. Am I right? Ah, the non-cast I? watch. Oh, oh. Well, who are they? <laughs> who are they? <laughs> oh no, I've heard of them. Well, Thunderclap had another email though that I liked. I, I was really one. excited about this one. I had an answer right away, and I actually wanted to email you back right away, Thunderclap. But I was saving it. I was, you know, edging till this moment. Um. <laughs> <laughs> God, oh God, this pandemic has to end. Oh, my jokes get worse <laughs> as it goes on. Uh, Chloe's like, what is happening? Help. <laughs> this is a cry for help. I can, I can change that language if we want, but maybe we should just keep it for authenticity. Yeah, and, you should. Anyway, Thunderclap sent us an email, and I'm going to just summarize it of, of this... Uh, Tradition that happens in the Vale come winter, where Mord was explaining, you know, there's a there's an oxen that gets butchered, and then they get thrown out, you know, onto like the floor of the Vale for the val- for the falcons to eat, right? And then mm-hmm. in the springtime, when they all come back, they'll be like, okay, is the oxen like still there? If the oxen like froze and you know, like, didn't spoil during the winter, which, as we all know, is very long, then they'll take that oxen and then they'll roast it and eat it as part of the spring feast. And Thunderclap wants to know if you would eat the oxen. And I... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just like, that's not even a question. Like, unequivocally, yes, I would eat it. (laughs) I bet that's the best oxen you'll ever have. That's some dry-aged meat when you think about it. Yeah. Mm. Throw some barbecue sauce on that. Have have a little oxtail. Oh my god, awesome. we don't even have to put barbecue sauce, you know? Like, you just gotta trim out the... But that's the thing, you know that thing is packed with salt, right? Yeah. Like, you know they took salt oh, and they true. just, like, caked it all over it. So you know you scrape that beautiful dry rub of salt off and that crap's beautiful. Are you saying mm. that they salted it for the falcons? <laughs> wow. Well, Those birds are eating are very so finicky. well. Yeah, we should eat the falcons too. 
<laughs> they're really into cholesterol and sodium, so uh, they're salty. Yeah. It's not a question. I would eat the oxen. That's it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I wanted to bring I that up. I can't help who I am. <sighs> sustainably grown. You know, the good the good way. In the veil. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Probably not sustainable. I mean, probably not. Well, uh, and you also know that the meat is tenderized because it was thrown exactly. out of a 600 foot yeah. door. Exactly. That's... <laughs> Listen, if you're hungry and you don't get to live up beautifully high in the veil like all the great lords, maybe maybe it's all right. I'd eat some meat, some street meat, some veil oh, street yeah. meat, okay, is what I'm trying to say. It sounds like you <sighs> can only have it once every few years. It's a delicacy for sure. Yeah. Families from all around gather for this day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, class disparity. Uh, well, that brings us to, of course, our lightning round, which is where we... Check in real quick on the chapters we missed between Catalan 6 and Catalan 7 in A Game of Thrones. Yes. So, to start us off, we have Eddard 9. Littlefinger! Ugh, leads yeah. Eddard part of the way to the truth, meeting an infant named Bara, but his discovery is interrupted by Jamie Lannister, who is set to avenge his brother's capture. Boo. boo. <laughs> also boo. A lot of booing there, yeah. Daenerys 4. The Kalasar enters Vase Dothrak, and Daenerys tries to signal peace to her brother Viserys, who wants none of the Horse Lord's peace. Bran 5. After learning of Jaime's attack, Bran is captured as hostage by six free folk. Rob and Theon save the day, leaving only one survivor, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking OSHA, OSHA. <laughs> OSHA's 11. Oh, sorry. That's, you, you just had OSHA. That's sorry. I was just reading it as I know how. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a long joke. <laughs> <laughs> that's the subtext of it. It's, it's a joke. Tyrion 5. A chapter also full of jokes. Captive in the sky cells, Tyrion manages to convince Liza Aaron he deserves a trial by combat. Eddard 10. Eddard faces another trial in his dreams of seven against three mm-hmm. at a tower long torn down. When he wakes, he's reinstated as Robert's hand. Perhaps a different nightmare. Mm. God, I love that chapter. I know, right? <sighs> that leads us to the chapter that we're on today, which is Catalan 7 of A Game of Thrones. Birds have flown and the Lannisters gather their armies at Casterly Rock. Uncle Brynden resigns his post to join the war, and Tyrion Lannister walks free at his trial. Bronn, having killed Sir Vardis Egan, rips Sir Vardis Egan. You tried. It's so unfair. I do feel bad about it. He did actually uh, try. He's actually, like, the most noble dude there. We're gonna talk about that for sure. Like, he's the least asshole-ish there. Yeah. Catelyn watches the sky break outside her window, the pale mists rising off of Alyssa's tears. Catelyn could feel the faint touch of spray on her face. Alyssa Aaron had seen her husband, her brothers, all her children slain, and yet in life she had never shed a tear. So in death the gods had decreed she would know no rest until her weeping watered the black earth of the Vale, where the men she had loved were buried. Alyssa had been dead six thousand years now and still no drop of the torrent had ever reached the valley floor far below. Catelyn wondered how large a waterfall her own tears would make when she died. God, what a banger beginning to this chapter. Yes. <laughs> so beautiful. 
and very subtle, subtle foreshadowing here. Subtle as a T-Rex <laughs> foreshadowing by by George. Uh, um, I I love that. Um, I also love that the that Catalan's eventual story is sort of an inversion of Alyssa's. Like Catalan loses her whole family, and she basically cries her eyes out for the entire rest of her life. But once she's dead, she will never shed another tear. Mm. Just blood, like lots and lots <laughs> of blood, uh, but no tears. Interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's pretty it's pretty hard, especially the silenced woman kind of motif that we chatted about up top with Thunderclap's email, you know, bringing Catalan mm-hmm. all about to that. There's also that reference of pale mists rising in this. And I do want to point out, we've mentioned before, Blood Raven is usually about when pale, pale mists are rising. So it makes you think, is Blood Raven watching the veil? Who knows? Who knows? Is it Blood Raven? No one knows. It could be. I could see that. It could be. Here's our random question. Do you think it's pronounced Alyssa or Eliza in order to have a symmetry with Liza Aaron? I don't know. Not that I, it matters. My, in my head, it's always Alyssa, but I don't know. It's also so unfair, right? Because then that brings up such a bigger conversation we'd have to have about Lise, Lys, Liza, Lisa. I mean, what do you really want here, Eliana? I know, what? and we, we've had the conversation, and our conversation was just to use all of the pronunciations. Yeah, use what your heart feels. And to saddle okay? fix it. Covers all the bases. What does your heart say? Roy Detrice would probably pronounce it like Alisa, something, or something really weird. <laughs> I like that, though. Sounds good. It's kind of fantastical, you know? Fits in well. It's got good The Room vibes. <laughs> Speaking of crying, you know, things being torn apart. Um, so a lot of the language here, right, it's the veil, it's the veil of tears, which is reminiscent of that biblical term, right? Sometimes it's translated as the valley of tears, but I'm pretty sure a veil and a valley are kind of like the same thing, but one's fancier. Regarding the tribulations of life left behind after one goes to heaven. Interestingly, it's also a phrase that comes up amongst uh, the many things that they go through. The the four in Harlan Ellison's short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Mm. They go through it, something that is called the Veil of Tears along with, like I don't know, the Slough of Despot or something like that. A bunch of places. And the short story, just like Harlan Ellison, is pretty racist and sexist. <laughs> and it's an interesting short story, though, as a lot of his stuff is. And, um, you know, he's one of the authors that influenced George. And I, I kind of think, you know, could the Veil of Tears be somewhat reminiscent of how Kat's life is going to turn out? Uh, Clint, you were talking about the the irony, right? The sort of inverse of Kat's life compared to Alyssa Aaron. And, you know, Kat's life, right? Like Alyssa's, is full of sorrows at the moment. And as you said, she cries a lot about it. But in the context of Ellison's short story, the narrator ends up like being, I'm going to just spoil the whole story. All right. It's not that long. If people want to read it, you can. <laughs> if you don't, like, again, who fucking cares? I mean, there are people who care, but whatever. Uh, anyways, the narrator ends up being like the very last human being alive and basically loses a lot of the things that you would identify with someone being human, like very physically changed and... It kind of reminds me a little of maybe Kat's story and ending, and I'm going to just read literally the end of this short story to all of you (laughs) about that loss of humanity and her voice. Outwardly, dumbly, I shamble about a thing that could never have been known as human, a thing whose shape is so alien a travesty that humanity becomes more obscene for the vague resemblance. Inwardly, alone, here, 
living under the land, under the sea, in the belly of Am, whom we created because our time was badly spent, and we must have known unconsciously that he could do it better. At least the four of them are safe at last. Am will be the matter for that. It makes me a little happier. And yet, Am has won. Simply, he has taken his revenge. I have no mouth, and I must scream. And Catelyn no longer has a voice. She don't speak, but she remembers. And she can't cry. She can't even express, as you said, the pain. There's no way for her to express any of that. Right. I mean, I love that it's that representation in the afterlife of the pain and the struggles that she endured during life, too, right? Because she wasn't able to scream at the terrors that happened to her as a young woman through adult of the things she had no control of either, you know? And, like, that idea of things manifesting through powers and through afterlife and through that religious reborn, right? Of her being reborn in the flames as this fire-white character. Uh, You have to forge that, right? That has to be forged through the pain that you endured. Honestly, even in this chapter, there are moments that, like, if I were Catelyn, I would scream. <laughs> like yeah. some that when yeah. Morton Wade would like I would scream in those moments. Yeah. If that man spoke to me, if he breathed at me, I understand that too. Yeah. The worst. We come back to our best friend, Sir Roger Cassell. He tells Catelyn the rest of it in the letter. The Kingslayer masses a host at Casterly Rock, and Edmure has sent riders to demand Tywin proclaim his intent. Lord Vance and Piper guard the pass below the Golden Tooth, and vow not to yield Tully land without Lannister blood. So now we're getting a little bit of, like, Catelyn hearing the price of that gamble that she took, and hoping that it doesn't take a worse turn because of her sister. Yeah, that's a great point that that had not occurred to me, that, like, Catelyn would be thinking that she did this. I think... You know, of course, we we know that Tywin was probably going to march on the Riverlands eventually, regardless of what Catelyn did. But Tywin saw that and used it as Casus Belli, and Cat probably doesn't know that. So she she like you point out, she probably feels extra responsible for this and must be extra terrified for her family and and her people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the guilt definitely like goes through to this next moment because she you know it's the letter came from edmir not from her father and that is a big red flag to her because edmir to her is not the lord of river run and she asks what her lord father intends but the messages make no mention of him and she kind of immediately is like shit is he sick because that's the only reason he wouldn't be sending mail yeah and he is sick right like she mm-hmm. she correctly guesses Ugh. just showing how astute catalan is in general i also love the bit about edmir like sort of pretending he knows what he's doing, which is very cute and admire, and I love him. I want to squeeze his cheeks. It is very sweet, but it's like the ultimate sweet admire move. Like he's obviously thinking of his people and he doesn't want to cause bloodshed, but also he's sending five men to go like cautiously peek it out, you know, and be like, hey, Tywin, what you doing? Like, uh oh. Yeah, Tywin's Tywin's like the mean old man you don't want to step on his lawn and he's going to have armies standing <laughs> on that lawn and now you're sending your best friends your BFFs to go check in yeah. I don't know it's an Edmure move he's coming to like age during a difficult time as a lot of them did right yeah. like it's a difficult time and you're going to make mistakes and it sucks because like he's taking on a new job and honestly right. the way that works is you gotta fake it till you make it 
All right. Well, he is faking it till he makes it. That is for sure. And that gets him in some trouble, as we know, later. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, and then continually later. And, and it's funny, though, because the Tullys, like, both of these siblings, especially for Catalan, like you said, this is an instance of Catalan being right. And whether you're a Catalan fan or a Catalan hater, the bummer is that the more that Catalan is right, the less fun it gets mm. that she's right. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's fun at first. You're like, oh, she was right. Oh, she was right. And then you're like, oh, no, she was right. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's going to start. It's already starting here, you know, and she knows in her heart of hearts that she's right about some of these intuitive things that she thinks right of her father being sick maybe of uh the war like she did already say like this is probably going to instigate lord tywin i gotta be on the lookout and here it is and she feels guilty and she knows in her heart of hearts she sped up that timeline just a little bit at the same time that timeline was already a full blast at king's landing thanks to cersei's machinations and whatever so it is kind of what it is I mean, everyone's fucking around in this book is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> That's true. All right. They're all Am fucking around. Right? They're like... all finding out. <laughs> Ned, two chapters ago in Ned 9, he's sitting there and he's like, I got to go. I got to go. My bro is no longer my bro. I got to go. <laughs> I can't trust anyone here. And then like he gets his ass sat down by Littlefinger, calms down and is like, all right, you've got a lead. Let me check it out. And then Robert sits his ass down. He's like, you can't go anywhere. You're my best friend, bro. I love you, bro. And then he's like, yeah, you're right. And he sits down and he stays. <sighs> Everybody's just fucking off in this book is what I'm saying. <laughs> so I can't judge anyone, you know? Jamie's out there causing shit in the streets. Everyone's like a dick. Off. Yeah, he Can you believe we did those three years ago? Our three-year anniversary was recently. Oh, that's true. You pointed that out. <sighs> Oh, Ned. Mm, Ned. So dead. Well, yeah. Liza and Catelyn, uh, of course, their their tepid relationship is brought back to the forefront because Catelyn realizes she was not awakened when the bird with this information from Edmure arrived. And Roderick's like, yeah, well, Liza thought maybe you should sleep, that it would be better to speak with you after the combat, hmm. uh, which, mm. of course, she thought that. Interesting. Liza withholding information? Never. Hmm. <sighs> Get right out of town. Uh, Liza still plans to go through with this mummer's farce. And Kat's like, Liza's being played, and I want to go home to Winterfell. I want to <laughs> leave. And Roderick, bless him, he's not really keen on the idea of taking another ship. If you remember last time, he turned bright green. So, yeah, poor Roderick. So Kat buckles up for both his sake and to just get the damn thing over with. And she thinks of her sister and thinks, Liza's policies varied with her moods and her moods changed hourly. The shy girl she had known at Riverrun had grown into a woman who was by turns proud, fearful, cruel, Dreamy, reckless, timid, stubborn, vain, and above all, inconstant. Yes. So I love the description of Liza like this because we've talked about it a little in previous chapters, but she is very much like the moon. And I'm going to read aloud um, a passage from Romeo and Juliet. If you like Romeo and Juliet, I'm sure you all know it, that uses very much this similar language of, Oh, swear not by the moon, thin constant moon, that changes monthly in her circle orb, lest that thy love prove likewise variable. And, I mean, yeah, that what they're saying is that Liza is as changeable as the moon, that every night has a different face on it, and just as Kat has come to embody many of the Stark values, as we've talked about previously, Liza has also 
very much become the Aaron sigil. She's become the moon, though, and not the falcon, who gets to feast on oxen. Um, (laughs) And Liza's love, right, has proven to be just as variable, also very much inconstant, as is hinted in this chapter, that she was not loyal to John Aaron, and clearly doesn't even have a constant love for her own family. Like, everyone's like, Catelyn's like, Tyrion's playing you, and it's like, no, all of you got played by Liza Aaron. It is some 4D chess, though. You gotta you gotta give Liza that. But <laughs> the language also reminds me of how Kevin kind of speaks about Cersei, right? And I think it's m- during the epilogue in uh, A Dance with Dragons in a Dabara, affectionately. But it reminds me of how he speaks of Cersei, kind of, and how she was as a young girl compared to now. And it, it does have, I think, for Catelyn, these thoughts. There is almost that little bit of, I don't know, just that little bit of sadness for her sister tinged with like mm. a little bit of internalized like why was she this way and didn't do things the way I did and this is why she's here and has caused her to be there uh, just a little bit in the way of how sisters I think see each other I wouldn't know specifically like, I, I don't think. have one <laughs> I, I think this is all this is all hypothetical but it's just really interesting the the comparison to Cersei and how the shrewd behavior and the very paranoid and fearful and cruel behavior gets highlighted in who they were as young girls versus now. Yeah. Um, I, I have three sisters, so I, I have enough sisters for all of us here. Um, oh, good. But cool. one, one of them sisters. in particular um, reminds me a lot of Liza, a lot oh, of Liza that's... in a lot of different oh. ways. Yeah. She and she I are not listen close. To this. We're not close. But, <laughs> okay. Uh, but it's the same. It, kind of growing up with her it was the same same kind of stuff that liza um projects and i recognize a lot of my own reactions to my sister in catalan's sort of inner monologue about i've got to deal with this bullshit again from liza. <laughs> um i get that it it, it re- i can relate wow yeah. Okay. And it's I think hard for Kat because right, she's like, I gotta deal with this bullshit again. But it's she's only feeling mm-hmm. that again in this visit. She's like, What the fuck happened <laughs> to my sister? <sighs> Dick happened. <sighs> well, and again, there's so much of that Robert and Ned kind yeah. of parallel going on of Absolutely. like, was I blind or did this actually happen when I wasn't looking or when did this happen? Uh, but both of them kind of realized the whole time, like, oh, this was happening the whole time. Yep. Oh, I was blind. <laughs> yeah. Both of those are related to the veil, too. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Tyrion had sought to confess, and Liza wants to make a show of it, again, because she is playing everyone. And then Kat wants to remind Liza that Tyrion is her prisoner. Maester Coleman has already filled Brynden in on the raven from Riverrun. Liza has refused to grant soldiers to her home, including to her own uncle. And then Brendan Tully hands in his resignation letter, effective immediately. He's like, fuck your two weeks notice. I quit now. Yeah, gods. That, that must feel so good for Brendan. <laughs> yeah. But uh, like, I do want to say, I mean, good luck getting a job reference from Liza going forward. It's going to be a problem <laughs> in his resume. I'm just saying. I mean, it's going to be a bigger problem when she's dead. That's true. That is a gap in your employment history, sir. Uh, Yeah, Kat thinks her uncle is going to have a very difficult time alone on the high road, and she actually insists she and Roderick should accompany him, 
promising 1,000 men for River Run. It, it's really sad, I think, for Brendan. It, it, it is sad, right? Like, this is a monumental moment for him that he stayed all these years in hopes that he could maybe help and protect Liza, but it turns out Liza doesn't want anyone to help and protect her besides Littlefinger uh, and the close court she keeps that we're about to see, the, the mummer's farce of a court of men that are all just draping themselves over her for a chance at the veil. It, it's sad. It's very sad. It's very empty for Liza. It is not what Catelyn or Hoster or anyone would have wanted for their that beautiful young girl who was so hopeful and wistful and has become this. Yeah, absolutely. And as he was the one who actually did get to see that transformation, he's the one who's not completely blindsided. Catelyn promising the Thousand Men for Riveron. Uh, it's interesting to see her taking control of matters of House Stark in giving those men, right? That she's the one who's able to give that order. Mm, and yeah. uh, Clint, you were talking about this earlier. It, it kind of ties into what you were saying with the beginning of this chapter. She's realizing what's happening to some extent. Cat, you know, she probably feels responsible for Riverrun being at risk now in giving those men, but also. You know, it's Kat, she was the older one, and like Liza, both of them were married off to sail in the lines during wartime. But Kat clearly understands what this alliance means. It's decades later, that alliance still is binding as this war is starting to ramp up, and she wants to protect her home, and clearly Liza has other priorities. Yeah. And, <sighs> and it's it's like the sort of original southern ambitions alliance right yes that, that mm -hmm. they have to honor um and it's like kind of the core of it and i think that that goes to brendan's frustration is that this is this is a a pact that has been sealed many times over and, and must be honored um and liza is flaunting it he's like this is the point this is why you're even here in the veil right, right now liza because you're supposed to help provide men to support the river run because it's the most vulnerable of all the locations in the seven kingdoms yeah i mean the subtext is this is why you married yeah right. like you married for these swords so for you and i mean that is you know uh, the very much so the projection inward and outward we get from catalan and liza right like catalan is pissed because she's like we put up with all this for this reason this is what we suffered for liza and you're just throwing it away but liza's like fuck you I'm not suffering again for that shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm eating my cake now, okay? I already baked my cake for how many years? Now I'm gonna eat it, She's bitch. literally gonna eat cake. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Part of me is, like, really mad at Liza through all this, right, because of her insufferable behavior. But also, <laughs> when I think of it this way, I'm also like, yeah, girl, you eat your cake. Good for her. I think yeah. I... <laughs> it's hard. I know. I could get. I could get her... Not wanting to support her home because of that, but I'm also just like but it is bullshit. It is bullshit. I, I it, it's bullshit, and especially because of all the other people who die, unrelated right. to that, and the whole war yes. part. Yeah, if it were you know, if it were smaller it stakes, war. if it were smaller stakes, you know, you're just like mom and dad. I'm not coming home for this holiday. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> know, uh, I get it. Hey, and some parents act like that is war. Okay, I just oh, want to put agree. that out there. But, I agree. But you know, this you know. Actually, this one's different. This is real war, <laughs> not fake war. Oh my god. <laughs> well, 
Um, well, they enter Liza's apartment, <laughs> and there's some interesting stuff going on. First, how gaudy it is, uh, right? In her apartments, the text is constantly emphasizing Robert's childish laughter, and Liza is gathered around her small garden, once a godswood, but the eerie could not get weirwoods to grow from their infertile ground. Again, spoilers foreshadowing, you know, mm. the future. So now it's got flowering shrubbery. This is where the wrestling match is going to take place today, right? Uh, and Liza is decked out. She's wearing cream velvet with a necklace of sapphires and moonstones to really ring on in the Aaron look. Make sure everyone knows who the boss is to get real fashion hour on it real quick. She's surrounded by lords, knights, retainers overlooking the wrestling ring and many are courting her. Robert's got a high chair. He's watching a puppeteer with two wooden knights. That's probably symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> That's symbolism. Uh, the language also, though, is really pointed, right? It, they're emphasizing the foolish appearance of Robert in the high chair, and then the, it explicitly calls him not Robert or Sweet Robin. It calls him the Lord of the Eerie, as they show how childish he's being. And, like, yeah, King Robert Baratheon was like a little disrespectful and probably also very much manipulated when he was like, yeah, I'm going to remove Sweet Robin as Warden of the East. But like, you look at this and you're like, I don't know. I don't know. Can you really like blame him? I kind of, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. He's weak. It's not great. Yeah. Well, would this be our podcast if we didn't mention food? We started with the oxen. Now we're coming to the dessert. And this was, this one probably is more like traditionally, appealing versus the years aged meat we have this mm. passage pitchers of thick cream and baskets of blackberries had been set out and the guests were sipping a sweet orange scented wine from engraved silver cups and you know i just recently got one of my like many food newsletters that i'm subscribed to i got the one from food 52 like today or yesterday oh. about desserts and it was especially talking about blackberries, and many of them had cream in them. And I was like, oh, it's a sign. Oh, I I, I love blackberries and cream, but I can't eat it because I'm lactose intolerant. It's bad. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. There are, the are non-dairy creams that yeah, I think will give you a Yeah, you could whip similar... up some cream. They're not, yeah. they're fine. They're not the same. I think they're coconut, I think coconut, like, creams and stuff with it could be good. Coconut cream whips up well, too, that froths well. I've been real into uh, frothing things lately for my coffee, as Eliana, Eliana knows this. But I'm very into frothing, so I, uh, I actually made like a berry pie the other day, and we had a little cream with it, so I feel very veilish. I was in the zone. Uh, we've talked a lot about Eddard and Robert compared to Kat and Liza the last couple episodes, and this here has another thing they share in this book. Robert and Liza never seem to be alone when Eddard and Kat really want to get them isolated and get truthful, mm -hmm. honest answers from them without people listening in. They can't get intimate and get the, the truth that they seek uh, throughout the story. People are always, their body court is always surrounding them. And I just, it really stuck out on this reread. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And it's one of those things that, um, again, had never occurred to me, but absolutely, as, as you're pointing out, um, the lack of the ability to sit people down and call people directly on their bullshit, which, you know, as sisters or, or Biffles, like, like Kat and Liza and Ned and Robert are, respectively, like, they could do that, but 
you can't do that while everybody's watching because it undercuts their power. It's a real problem. We see Robert doesn't obviously know. Uh, it doesn't seem that he's cognizant, cognizant of all of it. He might be a bit, but Littlefinger kind of seems to be the player at his side constantly, keeping someone around Robert, keeping Ned from the truth, keeping Robert uh, preoccupied, and very similarly keeping him preoccupied. Whereas for Kat, it, it's Liza is directly straying, right? Like she directly is yeah. making sure she's surrounded. She does not want to have to deal with giving her sister the truth. And it, it, the representation of the men, too, they're just like the worst dudes. Mm-hmm. They're all just like assholes in very opposite ways we're about to discover. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that that is a big difference, right? Liza's definitely doing it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Brendan Tully thinks this whole thing, though, is a fool's festival. And as you said, she's surrounded by the worst dudes. Again, men who would make me want to scream, like, in the worst way. Like, get me the mm-hmm. fuck out of here. Liza's flirting with Lord Hunter and Lynn Corbray, which eyes emoji. Side oh eyes God. emoji. Interesting that he's here, showing that they are the ones that she favors most today. Cat finds them both unsuitable for different reasons. True, true. <laughs> it is. It's two very specific opposite reasons uh, that I find so interesting. Uh, the first thing is Eustace and Harlan Hunter are names to remember. Lord Ian Hunter here is dead. He's done for. He's gone. If you're nice and caught up with the whole entire series and you're waiting and you're waiting for T-Wow like we are... He's done. Uh, He was killed, and it is suspected that he probably got murdered by Harlan, the youngest Mm. son. Yeah, and Gilwood Hunter is the current lord. He's the eldest. It's suspected the youngest Harlan killed their father. Gilwood won't be long if Harlan has his way. Uh, And Eustace and Harlan are definitely of an age that we might see them in the Winds of Winter in the Tourney of the Winged Knights that's going to go on. So it wouldn't surprise me if we had a little sun-on-sun action, maybe some hunter crimes go on in the winds of winter. So keep an eye out on them. And Lynn Corbray's entrance uh, in this chapter is great. Our first entrance we get of him really is Tyrion 5, where we, we get this great view of the Vale Court from Tyrion's eyes first before Catelyn's eyes. Lady Arryn had summoned her knights and retainers to hear his confession as he had hoped. He saw Sir Brynden Tully's craggy face and Lord Nestor Royce's bluff one. Beside Nestor stood a younger man with fierce black side whiskers who could only be his heir, Sir Elber. Most of the principal houses of the Vale were represented. Tyrion noted Sir Lynn Corbray, slender as a sword, Lord Hunter with his gouty legs, the widowed Lady Wainwood surrounded by her sons, others sported sigils he didn't know, broken lance, green viper, burning tower, winged chalice. Uh, and later on, those are revealed as House Widman, House Linderly, House Grafton, and House Hersey. So Lynn spends his time on page mostly threatening people the first two times we see him, <laughs> we see him uh, like straight up. And that's pretty much just his persona. He's usually threatening people or like whatever. That. Yeah, it's just his personality. He's v gruff. But in Tyrion 5, he literally has this line where he's like, I vote we behead Tyrion. And they're like, okay, well, he has to have a trial first. And he's like, fine, I vote he loses his trial and we behead him. <laughs> it's so funny. Which is not get... exactly due process, Lynn. Like, that's the thing. This whole thing cool. is not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to point out that I think the text says that 
Lynn, as Cat walks in, like Lynn is literally like feeding Liza blackberries on the point of his dagger oh, here, yeah. which is very saucy, I think. It is. And it's very underworldy. I know Eliana has some mythos she'll want to talk about in a bit, but the veil has some major, like, underworld kind of vibes mm, when they discuss yeah. going up the seven layers of hell to get up there. True. And- Interesting. Yeah. These are interesting men to highlight as, like, the contrast. It's very, like, devil and angel on the shoulder by her right now. Both of these men, Lord Hunter and Lynn, are eager, right, like most of them Vale men, to stick out their swords to fight for Liza, so to speak. And Sir Vardis Egan is actually the only one to give a damn about respecting the sanctity of human life. And as we know, he's about to die, so he doesn't matter. But he, <laughs> we have this line in Tyrion 5 where he's like, Sir Vardis had been singularly silent. My lady, he said gravely, sinking to one knee, pray give this burden to another. I have no taste for it. The man is no warrior. Look at him, a dwarf, half my size, lame in the legs. It would be shameful to slaughter such a man and call it justice. Yes. So like, yes. you know, not also like, obviously, that's a normal human position to take on fighting Tyrion. Like, it, it would feel probably wrong. Uh, and Obviously, he's not fighting him. He's fighting Bronn now. So there's a couple concessions in here, but there's very separate approaches from these men in the Vale. And it kind of seems like Vardis Egan, which I'm sure we'll get into, is being punished for not for dissenting from the way the men treat Liza there. Every man there was like, let's kill Tyrion. Yeah, let's kill him. This will be fun. And Vardis Egan, the only true knight among them, was like, I'm sorry, my lady, but this kind of sounds fucked up. Yeah. I, I feel so bad for Vardis Egan in so many different ways. I I often have sad about Vardis Egan thoughts and times because <laughs> like, and I'll talk about this a little bit more. I, I, I think knights are very similar to lawyers and I feel like he just got like sent the worst possible yeah. client and it ends up, it ends up being bad and it's, I, I just feel bad for him. Yeah. I mean, his client isn't, She's not great, right? <laughs> yes. she's, she's, we, we've already established that a few times throughout this chapter. Um, and she kind of reminds me a little bit of like a character who is portrayed as good, but with a twist. Penelope, Odysseus's mm. wife in the Odyssey. But again, with that twist, Penelope waits for like 20 years for Odysseus to return from his travels. And, and I think Liza is very much like that, right? She's waiting for her Odysseus, and we don't realize that. We don't know that yet. Uh, who is Littlefinger, which is, you know, that, that'll send your brain for a spin if you think about that too hard. But while the Odyssey shows that Penelope hated the suitors, and she was stalling so that she wouldn't have to marry any of them because she didn't like any of them, right? Especially because they are taking it out on her by just consuming all of her resources until she has no choice but to give in. Uh, Liza actually really enjoys the attention. Mm-hmm. She's she's feeling herself finally stepping out of her sister's shadow, and she like, you know, as you pointed out, she's eating blackberries off of men's daggers. Like she must enjoy that. I don't think she is feeling herself. She as is, you said. yeah, feeling herself. And you know, her Odysseus does eventually return. He accomplishes and climbs up the ladder. Right, proves himself in in that sort of heroic way right where Odysseus does it by like shooting an arrow through all of the axes I guess he does it by going all the way around collecting a bunch of different titles and then is like congratulations to me I'm lord of the Riverlands now 
which was her <laughs> childhood home, but mm. he also again don't think about it too. Don't think about Littlefinger's Odysseus too hard. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Odysseus was played in the canonical Benioff vehicle Troy. He was oh. played by Sh- by Sean Bean. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So it just all comes back. Full circle. Wow. I think they planned that. They're, wow. they're geniuses. Yeah. The show that Benioff the books are based on, yeah. indeed. Troy. Indeed. Actually, it is a little very much inspired by Troy, but not Troy, but the Iliad. Right. Oh, the Iliad. That's what Troy <laughs> I should, inspired. I should go around saying that these. I should definitely go around <laughs> saying that. Fucking the books were inspired by the movie Troy. Oh my god. <laughs> I should say that. Uh, fuck. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Liza is feeling herself so hard that she greets Kat super warmly. She's like, sister, hello, come on in. The orgy's great. Uh, and she invites her to start drinking. Which which is very that's how my family greets each other too. So that's nice. Yeah, that's mine nice. too. Yeah. Mine doesn't. Yeah. Uh yeah, I feel that. Kat is like, we need to talk. And Liza's like, No, I don't really want to. And Kat's like, No bitch, now. <laughs> and she tries to explain the stakes. She's like, Tyrion is more valuable alive. He's useless dead, and we're probably gonna be in a lot of trouble if we kill him. And she's also like, also his champion's pretty hardcore, and if his champion prevails, we have no prisoner, because prisoners are useless when they're not prisoners anymore. <laughs> uh, Lord Hunter is like, oh, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna be fine, Miss Catalan, it'll be absolutely fine, and spoiler, it was not fine. Catalan is like, not a gambling woman, but she's sitting there thinking, Bronn's pretty good, he's a pretty good bet against Vardis Egan, especially having survived the high road on the way here. That's kind of a sign. Yes, and we're not going to put this entire scene here, but I would have loved to, but it's like long. But go back and reread this because it is a masterpiece of a scene. It's well written. You can really see George's screenwriting background come through. It moves the entire, like it moves the story forward and that plot and while setting the context for things through the dialogue and people speaking to one another. Very well done. Yeah. One of those people, it's, it's Sir Morton Weedwood, my favorite character. He says, women understand little of these things. And then mansplains how Sir Vardis is an amazing knight and sellswords are stupid and cowards. So this is the part where I talk about how knights are like lawyers. And this is kind of the reason why I wanted to come on for this particular episode. And so everybody's like, come on, Clint. Just You, you want to be a knight and like lawyers are not that cool. And I get it. And I... <laughs> I stipulate to that, and that's fine. But here's here's the argument, is that knights and lawyers both are, their main job is to kind of stand in for the litigants, for the, for the people on the field of battle. So like when lawyers appear in court, a uh, judge will ask, like, if I'm there on behalf of the defendant, the judge will ask me, like, how does the defendant view this particular argument and i will speak on behalf of the defendant it's very similar to what you know champions do in in these trials Mm -hmm. by combat here that we see throughout the series and also as we've talked about on learned hands a few times both knights and lawyers have like ethical codes and duties and oaths that they are supposed to uphold and often fail to uphold 
in the course of their duties. And so I, I love this this whole scene because it's, it's very similar to how everybody thinks that when you get really expensive lawyers, that those expensive lawyers are better than the small firm lawyers or the, the solo practitioners or the public defenders and whatnot. And sometimes that is true. Sometimes those lawyers are very good and they uh, know what they're doing, but it's not always true. And there are a lot of great lawyers who um, are not like super high priced. And, and you also, when you go to trial, you just never know how a case is going to go. And it's the same thing that happens with a duel. I've had, I've had cases that I thought were absolute slam fucking dunks and this is going to make tons of money and it's going to be super easy and then lost those cases. And I've also had cases where I thought we had no chance and no choice and we were going to get absolutely creamed and then won. Um, and I've also had everything in between. And so it, it, it just sort of highlights the sort of uncertainty of these things that are designed to create justice or find a just result, but in many ways are just actual games of chance. Hmm. And we see the, the result of that here. I love that. That's a really, yeah. really great argument in comparison between the two. And I think it's also, you know, you're hoping each one can make the best case. And by that, you mean body, right? right? And mm-hmm. some of it, is it, it's up to chance, as you said, right? Like, who fights better or like who's on the jury that day who's who's a judge exactly. things like that mm-hmm. yeah vardis egan is absolutely the expensive lawyer here and as you said he's not necessarily a bad one right he's a good lawyer I, uh... and he's a good he's a good knight and he does a really good job i think under very difficult circumstances that we're going to talk about but like he still loses and that that just yeah. happens sometimes <laughs> yeah it was a really big risk too i mean it, uh, something that really stood out and just in some of the ideas you've had, Clint, I tried to consider that a lot more this episode and kind of look at it from that angle and like, God, I feel really bad for Vardis. Like he, he is playing a different game, the game he's playing by the classic rules. And I mean, that's something that's happening across this whole entire book right now. As we said, people are just fucking up and he and Catalin and Ned and all these people are playing the game by very specific, honorable rules and losing. Yep. Yeah. Same game everyone else is playing, but then you have Lynn Corbray standing there with his dagger and blackberries and Lord Ian Hunter with his ho 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 Lady Liza's and here's Vardis Egan dying. What is he doing wrong? He's playing by the rules with honor. Right. And I think, like you said, it's something that's going on across these books. And I think it's especially poignant coming through in Catelyn's chapters, right? We've been talking about how this is exactly what's happening in Catelyn's chapters. She thought that the system was going to work and everything, you know, but Vardis Egan is made a different stuff than those other people, right? He, he is pretty different from Lynn Corbray and yeah. Lord Hunter. I think Lynn Corbray, uh, even, he clearly doesn't have a good sense of justice. He's the kind of person who I think, you know, if we're keeping with this analogy, yeah, I think Lynn Corbray could hold his own in a fight. I think he could kill, he could take on Vardis Egan. I think that he could probably take on Braun pretty well too, but he doesn't care about it. Lynn Corbray seems like someone who would also pay off the judge. But mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. yeah. he doesn't give a shit. I mean, we've all read these books. We know how Lynn Corbray is. And I mean, I th- I, I'm fine with that because the- I'm not fine with that, but I think that that's his character, right? It makes sense for him. Yeah. And I don't know. I think a lot of people would have a harder time if their justice system, if our lawyers had to fight each other instead of with their fists, instead of their minds. But 
Believe me, there have been times when I really wanted to. I, really wanted to. <laughs> I guess here, you know, like if if the defendant here loses, two people die instead of just one. If you think about it, whereas if the prosecution right loses, only one person dies, as far as we True. can tell. It's the better <laughs> outcome, <laughs> really. You think about it, uh, the least. Dies. It's the better outcome by one right? justice. Um. Anyway, speaking of other things that are frustrating morton wainwood he 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 himself he's just frustrating and his words also set the stage for something that comes up in catlin's chapters especially as he talks of swords and the lower classes as disposable when the rest of the realm is now like at the brink of war emphasized again by the start of this chapter and we don't actually know i think how old sir morton wainwood is we don't actually know exactly how old sir anya wainwood is it's but he might not have any combat experience at all. That's entirely possible. And yet he is so sure of his perspective on all of this. I'm like, Merton Wayne would have you even lived through a war? I don't know. He might not have even been that old or alive during Robert's Rebellion. No idea. And Kat and her contemporaries survived it, right? They saw the damage of it. Like, literally her husband is a war hero. And, mm-hmm. like, he knows more about this. He doesn't hold those same ideas when it comes to class and ability when it comes to fighting. And... Like, the Vale Knights and their lords are very much in their ivory tower. I think that Nauticast did a great breakdown of a lot of that, um, so I'm not going to retread all of it, but Morton's words here do set the stage for how we're going to see this come up a lot in Cat's chapter specifically, especially in Clash, of these naive men who think that they know about war because they have been taught heroism and chivalry through the songs, but are really just boys of summer, and that's something that Cat will note later among the Tyrells. Yeah, it's a going to the Eerie was not a positive move in the end. Like she left feeling very disheartened and rightfully so, I think. Rightfully so. Yeah. It's a hard truth to swallow. If there's anywhere that would be fun to scream off of, though, it would be the Eerie through the moon door. Yeah, like in uh, the Garden State when they're standing on the thing Mm. yelling. (laughs) Yup. I guess. It's just like that. that that's exactly <laughs> how it would be. It would be just like the Garden State. Why are you guys laughing? It's not funny. <laughs> it's it is true, funny. is what it is. Speaking of true. Say you have the truth of it, then, Catalin said with a courtesy that made her mouth ache. I feel that one. I know. Mm. I'm like, oh my god. Mm. What a mood. Uh, in fact, when I just said that, I made sure to paste a smile on my face, because, you know, I should smile more. <laughs> uh, Catelyn asks, so what's the point of Tyrion's death? You know, whether the Lannisters, especially Jaime, cares that Tyrion got a trial is one thing. And Lane Corbray again starts in with a beheading. He's like, well, we should just kill him now then if it doesn't matter. <laughs> and Catelyn's like, that's not, she's like, that's not what I was implying. We shouldn't just kill him now. <laughs> but Liza refuses. She's like, no, my son would like to see this this man fly through the moon door and I would like to give him that show. So that's why we're doing this. And also Tyrion wanted a trial by combat. Yes. That's what he wanted. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, he demanded it. He, he filed a Westerosi writ of habeas corpus and oh my God. <laughs> cl- claimed his, his right as a noble for tri- for due process. This is what you get when you invite me onto your <laughs> podcast. Uh, but it, it's, this is like a feature of Westerosi due process or procedural due process is that nobles and knights get the right to demand a trial by combat. And it's like 
the only sort of unbad feature of Westeros process. <laughs> it's like not good, but it's not like it's not actively bad. And so I don't know. I, I just want to note that I like. I yeah. like this. It is what they have. Like it's this right. is it. This <laughs> is the one loophole, the saving Tyrion's life, and it's medium. I think it's like important. The it, it literally is the medium place. Yes. Like just warm yes. beer, one warm beer. Uh, and <laughs> God, while we're here, we may as well call out Tyrion's charges from Tyrion Five because in Tyrion Five, Liza literally announces, "This is Tyrion the Imp of House Lannister who murdered your father. He slew the hand of the king." what did he wow wow but like that's literally pretty much the main charge here that they're trying to find him guilty on like and then it became he killed bran was what catalan was like trying to figure out she's like well you killed bran but then obviously that dissolves and liza just takes on the train that Tyrion killed john aaron uh and and she has all the power it's a total power play right that she's saying that's a charge at all but it's really weird to see that because in Tyrion's chapter, he comments on how he sees Catelyn versus Liza, uh, versus Liza's crazy ass fucking shenanigans. And he says Catelyn might take a man prisoner, but she'd never stoop to rob him in the sky cells when he's uh, trying to bargain with his gold with Mord. And he thinks that wouldn't be honorable. So even through this whole interaction, even though Catelyn kind of dragged his ass to the Eyrie and did kind of place him toward this predicament by trusting the the variable that was her sister. He still sees Catelyn as semi-honorable through all of this, and like she's doing this by the books. Uh, and he sees kind of that Liza's crazy motherfucking shenaniganing this one. And I find that very interesting because Liza's out here just laying all these charges at his feet that he's like, I didn't didn't even do that one. Didn't do it. I want to ask Clint about that. You know, tell tell us about what that means. You know, can you just whip out random charges from anywhere, switching switching up the charges in a trial? So in a regular trial, no, you gotta <laughs> you cannot do that. Generally, this is not a regular trial, though. It's not a regular <laughs> trial. But like the so like the the other major feature of the Westerosi criminal justice system is that the Lord has the right of pit and gallows. It's like specifically retained yeah. in Westerosi governance by Aegon the Conqueror himself and so like as the lord or the representative of the lord here Catelyn is charging Tyrion with you know trying to kill Bran and Liza is charging Tyrion with killing Jon Arryn so like it's definitely weird and super suspicious and like you know this is all kind of bullshit ad hoc nonsense but like it works there yeah I mean it is ridiculous right because it's just like this big area and they're like well we're gonna have a big death duel and then whoever loses is gonna get thrown out the moon door hooray it's like it's kind of alice in wonderland-esque right like when they get to the tea party it's very tea party-esque you've got all the weird the blackberries and the knife and the craziness uh and even later when she makes sansa's favorite food favorite dessert and then she's like good now that i've had you nice and happy and in a place of security with your favorite lemon cakes i'm gonna dangle your ass at the moon door and beat you up mm, yes the best part of family gatherings Mm-hmm. Aww. now that i think about it, you were talking about like retaining certain rights i guess had Tyrion lost he could have always tried to plead the black or take the black yeah he could have could have tried um i think i think that's right but yeah. I don't know if, they if Liza let... allowed it. 
Yeah. She would have been like, sure, you will go out the moon door and then you can join the, the black. Yeah. Yeah. At night when it's dark out. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, it's just as high. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. Well, you know what? Lord Hunter also wants to get it on the mansplaining. He says that Liza had to accept this trial because it's honorable. And Kat just ignores the men. Uh, to remind Liza that Tyrion is her prisoner, and Liza, in what must honestly, I just gotta say, it must be an Oscar-winning <laughs> performance. She reminds Catelyn that Tyrion poisoned her husband. Oh my god! And she says it with a straight face, and then turns around, whips her hair, draws her skirts behind her, and is like, "We're going." She doesn't say it, you know. She says it with her body. It's just so ice cold. <laughs> And it's dramatic lighting. It yes. is. And then everyone leaves with her. And I'm just like, that's very suspicious. But like, oh. give her give her the Oscar. Give her BAFTA, you know? <laughs> Duh. They got that pussy on a pedestal. For sure. Mm-hmm. Mm, that nice. pussy is on a pedestal. But not cat. Woo. No, not cat. Get it, because oh pussy God. cat. Yeah, because wrong pussy. Oh. <laughs> things move fast here clint things move fast here got it i get it uh well roderick who uh of course Catalan's bff our bff he yes. picks up on all this and notices things are kind of odd and he's like so cat do you think Tyrion did it and cat's like it was the lannisters but i don't know how or who was involved liza implicated cersei in the letter not Tyrion. and then Catalan thinks Catelyn almost wished she had burned her sister's letter before reading it. Mm. <sighs> so Liza named Cersei in the letter she sent to Winterfell, but now she seemed certain that Tyrion was the killer. Cat is ob- like she obviously knows something's up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a sign, and, and she sees it. it. It's a sign. It's a sign. And in Tyrion Five, uh, I was reminded of. Tyrion thinks if Cersei kept her wits about her, she would insist the king sit in judgment of Tyrion himself. Uh, He's sitting there thinking that while Liza is kind of assigning this whole trial situation to him. And that line stood out to me because in A Storm of Swords, in Tyrion's next trial, Cersei does make sure the guy Mm -hmm. who's basically king is judging him, Tywin, Mm -hmm. but not like to his advantage. Ah, poor Tyrion. This doesn't stop for him. It keeps going. Life sucks. Yeah, I mean, Tyrion is an absolute shit in a lot of different ways, but, like, he didn't do this. You know, like, he's getting fucking yeah, railroaded. Left and right. He never Left did right. this shit. So, yeah. <sighs> yeah. That's a Bummer. great catch. Uh, that is a great catch. I don't know what it's going to be, but I think he's going to have a third trial by combat, and I'm going to come back. I think, thing, you know, things happen in threes. I yeah. think he's going to have point. a third one with something even more escalating. Maybe he'll actually be guilty that time. <laughs> oh, that would be good. Maybe. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of speculation with the bad show and how it lines up and if anything was real or if it was all just made up and nothing mattered. And uh, I do think that, like, his plot has a similar direction probably as the show. He probably mm-hmm. will be really gung-ho to support Danny, and then maybe... Uh, kind of do some some plotting that maybe he shouldn't and get in trouble for it and maybe his ass gets saved from being dragon food at some point you know maybe maybe she's ready to do him in finally maybe danny's like i'm sick of his mouth i think we're all sick of his mouth a little right now not enough to kill him but 
He's he's got a a lot happens in his story. Yeah. So Roderick suggests that the imp could have poisoned somebody, but then he says, "Hmm, it is said that poison is a woman's weapon." That's my Roderick. I love it. And also, it's obviously not Jamie's style to poison somebody. Jamie would just like stab them in the back or slit their throat and leave them <laughs> lying <laughs> in front of the Iron Throne. And so, like I, I, Roderick, great instincts here. He's a very good detective. Even if some of the rationale behind using poison is, you know, misogynist and sexist and also wrong. Um, <laughs> but like, who 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 really is behind it all? When you think about it is you know he's doing a good job at sort of piecing this together also asking you know whether it really was poison and Catalan's like you know quite rightly she's like well yeah how else are they gonna make it look natural which is a really good point and i guess like you probably couldn't like smother him with a pillow or something like that not that i've thought about ways to kill somebody he's a lawyer to make it look natural natural oh my god this man Wow, law. Mm-hmm. So much law <laughs> happening here. So much. This is not law. This is not legal advice at all. This is, I think, I'm the opposite. This is breaking the law. <laughs> um, I mean, to that extent, I will say, like, I don't know. John Aaron was old. There's a lot of ways to make it look natural, okay? Just yeah, cough at him too hard. Like, push him down. I don't know. Yeah, they all thought he looked pretty healthy, though. I don't know. It's interesting that the concepts of poison and women's weapons are tied closely together, and I think it's it's definitely implying something here in this section with the rest of this chapter and everything else that happens in this chapter, right? It is Liza, to an extent. Also, it's Littlefinger. He has a definite modus operandi of, like, also using women to poison people, right? Liza mm. to John, Sansa and Elena for Joffrey, and arguably, maybe you could say Sansa the Sweet Robin, but I think that Sansa will wise up to that as we've discussed I don't mm-hmm. know, two years ago now but again, I think things happen in threes. I wonder if there might be a third more explicit one hmm. Interesting The way there was for like Liza, you know, more more clear of that causal thing I do respect that I think this definitely influenced Tyrion and later when he poisoned Cersei Right? Uh, Uh Thinking of what's an easy thing to do that no one's going to notice when he poisons his sister to put her out for a day. Yeah, that's uh, (laughs) by giving her diarrhea. Yeah. And (laughs) I mean, he does do it also with Yezen, right? Mm hmm. So. Yeah, that's true. He starts doing it more and. He has picked up poisoning a little bit, eh? And and we're. We'll see more poisoning in King's Landing when Tyene's there, obviously, probably in the background, and people will probably die of poison quietly. She is a woman, so they do poison, I hear. I just heard. She learned it from her dad. (laughs) Who's not? I learned it from watching you. (laughs) Oh my god. (sighs) You know, back to that letter, it's interesting, because Kat's, you know, surveying the thought of the letter that she got from Liza. And there are so many different significant letters that have kind of been like, you know, the kaboom, the the big fire that lights up and just boom, here goes Westeros. And this is one of them. But it reminds me of another letter that we get and some plots that kind of some plot points that kind of coincide here. And that's Jamie's letter from Cersei, right? Which Kat's letter from Liza, she thinks, I wish I had just burned it. I wish I had thrown it away. I wish I'd never read it. And she did burn another letter in her life without looking at it, right? Mm. Littlefinger's letter. 
After mm-hmm. Brandon had died, Littlefinger sent her a letter and she didn't open it. She threw it straight out. And Jamie throwing Cersei's letter out after reading it has these kind of vibes as well, right? Of Catelyn having fallen for her sister's ploys, her innocence being fooled, having drawn her on this goose chase, this journey out to the Vale, where now a man Catelyn doesn't even think is guilty anymore is pretty badly stacked oddwise in a fight, right? Uh, and I can't believe I'm defending Lannisters today, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that as we get to the conversation of the duel here soon, and we talk about Brandon and Littlefinger's duel, it does bring up that letter she burned. She has a big contrast in that she knew to throw out Littlefinger's letter, right? Like in her heart, she knew don't even open it, throw it out. But of course, her hesitation in the face of her familial bonds to her sister, how she was raised, how she was conditioned to honor her family and to help family. Uh, it makes sense that she trusted Liza and that she's here now because that's those are the values she was kind of imbued with. Yeah, great point. Family duty honor. Mm-hmm. It's not little finger duty honor. It's family duty honor. Damn it. Well, someone should tell Liza that. Right. Because <laughs> that's all she wants to do is little finger. In many ways, yes. Gross. She's like, what if other words were little finger? Family duty honor. <laughs> <laughs> Little finger booty honor. Pretty much. She barely succeeded the last one later on. Um Cat critiques Sweet Robin. Not not to Liza's face, of course, thinking that he must be taken away from Liza to grow. And then Maester Coleman joins the conversation because he was also joining in the brunch drinking and just like happened over here and then volunteering. <laughs> you know what? You know what? John Aaron agreed with that idea. Yes, he was planning to send the boy to Dragonstone for fostering, you know. Oh, but I'm speaking out of turn. The apple of his throat bobbed anxiously beneath the loosed maester's chain. I fear I've had too much of Lord Hunter's excellent wine. The prospect of bloodshed has my nerves. They're all afraid. You are mistaken, maester, Catelyn said. It was Casterly Rock not Dragonstone, and those arrangements were made after the hand's death without my sister's consent. The maester's head jerked so vigorously at the end of his absurdly long neck that he looked half a puppet himself. No, no, begging your forgiveness, my lady, but it was Lord John who... A bell tolled loudly below them. High lords and serving girls alike broke off what they were doing and moved to the balustrade. (sighs) That's a info dump right there, eh? That tells us something is afoot. Bells were like lies. air horns. Sirens. <laughs> yeah, red flags. Holy shit. Throwing some red flags, ref. Caught in the lies. Liza. Liza and Arbor, if that is your real name. Um, this is a great highlight because I'm not sure, but it, it seems her own maester has betrayed her lies. Do we know, uh, this is a question, and I don't know the answer, and maybe you two do, do we know if Liza was lying here, or whether she was in fact being manipulated by Littlefinger, or like some mix of both? Because I could totally see Baelish telling her, oh yeah, the plan is to send them to the Lannisters, and then having Lysa believe that, and then use it as causes Belli for killing John. So do yeah. we know? We don't really have that answer, right? I I agree that Littlefinger is definitely manipulating her in one manner or another here. Like, he has to be involved in this. 
But when I read it, I definitely thought it implied John planned to have him hosted with Stannis. Right. And maybe publicly people were trying to say it was Lannister. But Pycelle also tells Ned Robert was supposed to go to Dragonstone, right? In that last couple Ned right. chapters, we learned this. Right. So even though they're all told at the start of the book by various people, Liza fled because she was afraid of the Lannisters taking her child, we're learning otherwise from other people. So either Littlefinger tells her to plant the Lannister lie or manipulates her into believing the Lannister lie. Um, I kind of opt for her planting the lie and maybe Littlefinger manipulating her into planting that lie and Mm. telling Kat that lie Mm -hmm. because there's kind of something so intimate about Liza's manipulations and betrayals and lies to her sister, like how this has been a total gaudy show, right? Like how there's, you know, Lynn Corbray juggling daggers and blackberries into her mouth and you got Eon Hunter presenting wine to everyone and, oh, yes, enjoy the show, lads. Quiet Liza, it seems, watched her sister all those years and learned exactly enough to manipulate and seduce her into this shit. And it just seems like, again, siblingless, it seems there is a way someone close to you in a familial sense could push your buttons so mm-hmm. much more than someone else. And, I mean, she also has the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha syndrome, <laughs> you know, like cattle and cattle and cattle. And it was always cat with her beautiful hair and her beautiful body and her stark husband. It's always ever cat. All I got was this old gross man. Uh, I don't know. It just felt like a very intimate manipulation to me. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I feel I feel the same that it's like, especially because I think Coleman knew if if Coleman knows and other people in the Vale know then I think Liza knew Mm -hmm. where he was supposed to go. And I think this is among one of those points of evidence there's so much of it in this chapter that's being pointed to liza slash not the lannisters right it for being guilty for a lot of things perhaps partially because george is making it clear that Tyrion is innocent i mean we kind of already like got the sense of it we got the feel for that but it is interesting that the reveal for who is the real killer of john aaron right you're given a red herring at the end of this book but same as the Red Wedding, which was also supposed to be in the first book, both of those reveals and, and big plot points get pushed to the third book because of George's gardening. Well, enter Tyrion Lannister, man of the hour, still a prisoner. Robert Aaron giggles and asks again if he can make Tyrion fly. Lynn Corbray reminds us, though, of how justice works. Clint, will you take the honors as our lawyer? (laughs) Trial first, drawled Sir Lynn Corbray. Then, execution. Oh my god, we are sending that to Mary and we're going to have her put you on trial for that accent. That's bad. It's bad. No, I'm just kidding. I had to laugh. It was beautiful. It was a good draw. I can't really draw very well. I could do a little rogue you know, like, I just got to copy X-Men animated series, but I can't do Southern. That's hard. Uh, oh, Lynn Corbray. He is really out for blood these last couple chapters, eh? Uh, he is out for blood. And, you know, I do like this as a concept only in one situation for a certain unemployed man in the veil. Uh, I, I, I'm shitting on the illegitimacy here of this trial casually, because it really is just so illegitimate. Uh, but at the same time, feels kind of like a trial that's going to be given to Littlefinger by Sansa. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
he doesn't really deserve Gastrite for all the trouble and machinations that he's been scheming and plotting and, you know, ruining of lives and family and economy and trafficking. Uh, he doesn't deserve the fairness of a trial, right? But, but I don't know. Well, we, you know, we all deserve a trial. Everybody deserves <laughs> you a trial. I going to say that. Sorry. Um <laughs> But I do wonder yeah, yeah. if uh, if Littlefinger will like sort of demand a trial by combat, or instead will sort of think that the fix is in, and then like <laughs> actually submit to the judgment of the Lord or the Lady, um, oh. and that's that's when Sansa turns on it. That's yeah, I hope uh, I could see it happening that way. Girl boss, gaslight, gatekeep. Yeah, Night, can't wait. Knight of the gate, keep the uh. men gatekeep. The moon gatekeep. Oh my god. Uh, both of the champions appear from opposite sides of the garden. Servardus Egan is wearing a very nice, heavy set of armor, cream and blue. Wow, idiot. Uh, that's not going to be fun to move in. With the sigil of House Aaron and a really sick helmet with wings and a beak. This is a trial by combat, sir. Bronn, on the other hand, is lightly armored with some armor in key places. So I want to talk a little bit about lawyer suits again, because so like they talk about the contrast between Servardus, who has like this sick, like super expensive suit of armor. And then Braun is just like showing up in a shirt and I don't know, flip flops or something. So lawyer suits, it's it's a thing that I think about a lot, even though I haven't had to wear a suit in a long time because of, you know, the pandemic. But like <laughs> the the way that suits like business suits or lawyer suits that everybody can picture in their head the the actual cut of those suits grew out of evolved out of sort of martial and military uniforms in the medieval post-medieval period this is why like business suits and or lawyer suits they seem so formal it's also why they're sort of designed to make your chest and shoulders look bigger is that it grew out of sort of military armament and it's also why some more fancy suits like on Savile Row which is like the London tailory area tend to have sort of a flare on the tails or the skirting of the jacket. And that's because the style comes from a cavalry dress. Like when you're like sitting on a horse, that's how hmm. it's supposed to be that way. And so anyway, like when I got my very first lawyer job, I took my first lawyer job paycheck and bought a very, very fancy spendy suit with all the bells and whistles and like monogram shirts and all this you know, really nice stuff because I thought that's what lawyers were supposed to do. It looked good. It was also a Savile Row style, as a matter of fact. And then when I did my first jury trial, which is what I thought I was buying the suit for, my boss told me I couldn't wear the good suit because it made me look too fancy and the jury wouldn't like it. And because we were the plaintiff's lawyers, we don't want to piss off the jury. We don't want to look like we're, you know, too fancy. And so I would have to wear the ugly men's warehouse suits that I had had for years and that made me all look all boxy and bad. And this is all to say that I love this detail about Bronze armor looking shitty because it solidifies him as the sort of scrappy underdog in everybody's eyes, like in the reader's Mm -hmm. eyes. Like they're like, oh, he's the he's the underdog. And moreover, as we'll see, it, it will actually his suit, his like poor suit will actually save his life, whereas Vardis's fancy suit of armor arguably costs him his in the end that was a fantastic fashion hour mm-hmm. yeah i was just gonna say thank you for providing us with a fashion hour and, and it makes so much sense like 
any time in this story someone is wearing the excessive metal rain mints, right? You know that they're probably going down. Like, it, it, we, we've seen it happen already. This is just a redux of the tourney where we watched a Veil Boy in Beautiful Armor die, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is what the Veil Knights do, you guys. They die. They, <laughs> they wear fancy and armor. Then <laughs> and then, yeah, like, you gotta give them that, I guess. And I love that Kat calls all this, right? Like, the whole time she's watching this, she's like, look, it's not really what I wanted, but... uh yeah, that guy's gonna die. Bran is taller than this guy. He's bigger, more formidable, and younger. He's 15 years younger. He has longer reach. He's like 30 to 34 years old, maybe even younger than that. So, womp, womp, womp. Uh, Kat calls him as she sees him. She's she's good football wife, you know? The mm-hmm. Septon is doing some really cool rainbow shit, and he's singing a prayer, and then he quickly leaves, blessing, you know, the, the, the big trial that's about to happen. Tyrion makes a joke to Bronn. Egan gets a shield. Bronn refuses a shield. And uh, we admire Bronn's beard for a bit through Catelyn's eyes and that his sword is very sharp. Interesting, Catelyn. She has some fantasies brewing here, doesn't she? She does. She's like, I don't know. Would I fuck him? I'm not sure. Um, Yeah, I, I, I love the whole part with the septon blessing the trial and like handing it over to the gods because it's very similar again to handing a trial over to a jury at the end it's like you tell them okay we've we put on this show and it's yours now and you just like with a jury when you hand a trial over to the gods you really 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 never know what they're gonna do yeah yeah and i think there's something really really poignant in that it's in the godswood which we know from this chapter the soil is too thin and from Tyrion 5 and as we hear from Sansa a godswood without gods as godless as me mm. there may be a sept in blessing this infertile holy ground that is you know I mean it's been ripped up from the roots but it's just kind of insulting right you're hosting this trial here in a godless mm. godswood there are no gods here for justice that's the mm. point you're handing over the contest to the gods, but there are none. They've been rooted out. Yes. Liza has given Ser Vardis a sword with a falcon head and a crossguard of wings. Originally, she had it made for John Aaron when he acted in Robert's stead. She says, I thought it only fitting that our champion avenged John with his own blade. And I'm like, wow, damn, she really jinxed him, huh? She really said mm-hmm. that about uh... all this. And <sighs> BAFTA uh the swords <laughs> are also that that's those are metaphors for the men right where servardus egan is talked about as like all this flash he's decked out like john aaron's sword but a lot of it is mostly ornamental and as you said unwieldy right mm-hmm. whereas a bronze sword it looks really sharp there's a line that describes it as looking like it had been honed every day for hours <laughs> which likely <laughs> is the case for Bronn and his skill right mm-hmm. he actually has real experience and has honed <laughs> his skills, whereas Vardis Eakin's like, I don't know. He's honed his sword daily for hours? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, We're not all thinking it. Us. You can look at the menu, uh, but you can't, you gotta go home to the oatmeal, Chloe. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <sighs> Just because I'm on a diet doesn't mean I can't look at the menu, is is right. the fact of it. But that is what Catalan's thinking, and also that's probably... Why she's she's thinking about Degrassi. No, that's probably why Catelyn is also like 
kind of eyeballing Bronn right now, because let's face it, Bronn is kind of described, other than his darker behavior and skills, he's described as kind of a plain brunette uh, man that plays with his sword all day, every day for hours. And Ned constantly is sharpening his sword and the gods went quietly to himself to dissociate and stare at trees and shit. I'm sure that, you know, Bronn is maybe reminding her of that. Maybe she's just like, oh, interesting. A Nedotype. She loves playing brunettes now. Exactly. Girl's got a type. Um, You know, you can love mud is what we've discussed in this story. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, throughout all this, Vardis Egan is definitely the one that is getting some, right? Because he's getting fucked here. He fuck! He's getting fucked. Fuck! <laughs> Got him. Um, what the fuck? Catalan's like, maybe he should have used the sword that he's used to wielding instead of this ornamental special sword, but whatever. And I have to say, reading this portion of the book and the passages and Liza's like actions... You really got to hand it to both Katie Dickey and Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros for their canonical performances in the chair show and our podcast as Liza Aaron. Uh, when I read these books, I hear either of them in, in their shrill, you know, tones, just very commanding and shrill. And this whole passage is just foolish and silly. Liza is making a beautiful display of a mummer's farce, all this pageantry, right? Like, it's very... She has become this great ruler. Look at me now, big sister from my throne. But she's doing it wrong. Catelyn is suffering here in silence. She's regretting the trip more and more as she goes along. There's this great line of, The engraved silver blade was beautiful beyond a doubt, but it seemed to Catelyn Sir Vardis might have been more comfortable with his own sword. Yet she said nothing. She was weary of futile arguments with her sister. (sighs) And I can relate. I have often been weary of futile arguments with all of my sisters. Um, but this is this is like just so bananas from Liza that she would make him use the sword. Um, it's it's wild. But at the same time, I really feel like Vardis should have insisted. Like, look, if you're going to make me do this, you got to give me my own sword. Of all the people here, he has to know that even though everyone else didn't think so, Bronn has a shot to kill him. So keep your own sword, dummy, or just like, I don't know, pick it up and then like have somebody hand you the other sword. Like, don't don't like go into battle that could cost you your life with a sword that you don't know. Yeah, Uh, don't die for this gallantry, the chivalry of the veil, you know, the veil and those green boys of summer that they'd rather die with a sword in their hands chivalrously than save their asses. Yeah, which is the opposite, as we see for Tyrion later. (laughs) as he's like i don't care how i look anymore please get me out of this fucking crazy house (sighs) yeah he should have known better he's had experience right yeah damn that lannister pride (laughs) oh my god (laughs) (laughs) it's all that fault well sweet robin screams for them to fight he's like let's fight Egan does a battle cry. Everyone is super awkward until Liza reminds Sweet Robin, they're waiting for you to command, darling. So he goes, fight! And they do. (laughs) Clink, swing, swing. Bran dances away from Vardis Egan's swings. Lord Hunter and the other Vale Lords jeer out, you should fight, Vardis. But Roderick thinks Bran's strategy is smart. The weight of Vardis' armor will tire him out. Yes. We see that the strategy 
that Bronn has comes up a few other times throughout these books, too. And honestly, when Roderick remarks upon it, he doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Yeah, and knowing that Gurm is a man of a certain age and a massive sports fan, this is almost certainly a reference to the to the rope-a-dope strategy that was made famous by Muhammad Ali in the 1974 Rumble in the Jungle against George Foreman. Mm. Uh, who is like, George Foreman was a lot bigger than Muhammad Ali, and so mm. the idea was like, he allowed George Foreman to just like, punch himself out punch himself until he was tired <laughs> keep punching and he just kept running and running and running and then he turned around and whipped his ass very it's almost the same thing that happens with with braun and so yeah mm. i love that connection I, I i think that's definitely could be an inspiration and i mean it's an iconic right it's an iconic fight right and i mean this is also an iconic fight in this series Lord Hunter and the Veil Lords have come for a show though, right? And they're like, this is not a show because to them, they're expecting this to be kind of like a tourney, right? But men, especially from the Veil, turns out, tend to die in tourneys, uh, as we learned in Sansa's chapters. And it shows that along with not caring, they like they don't give a fuck about Vardis Egan, right, fighting, <laughs> or as already established, they do not give a fuck about Bronn or Tyrion, <laughs> and they're not even thinking about the consequences of all of this. They're just like, I don't know, whatever. Uh, it'd be kind of cool if Tyrion died, and I'm like, well, do you not care about the fact that everyone knows that Tywin Lannister is mustering strength? Maybe they don't know, right? The the Raven just came in and lies well, trying to maybe keep it hush hush, right? Uh, there's no war in bossing say but somehow no one gives any shits about the consequences like they have to know right they can't all be so stupid to not realize like if Tyrion Lannister dies then Tywin and like the only person that I will excuse for all of this is like Lynn Corbray not caring because he just doesn't care that's just his thing it's a personality trait yeah, yeah. that's just yeah. who he is but the others other lords and stuff they like just really think that their shit don't stink lynn corbray knows that he's like that dude the others don't yeah and like all of the declarant that are there that are just like seeking the power right looking for the the scraps the crows that are awaiting on the corpse and just trying to grab any little bit of power it's a, it's definitely kind of a shit show. Like watching it, you're just like, this isn't how you run one of the the seven kingdoms. No, this is a joke. This is a farce. Ithaca is lost. I mean, like Robert's courts were funny, but this is like really funny. You know, like this is like what the fuck is this? Like a circus? What is happening here? Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. She had seen men practice at their swordplay near every day of her life, had viewed half a hundred tourneys in her time, but this was something different and deadlier, a dance where the smallest misstep meant death. And as she watched, the memory of another duel in another time came back to Catelyn Stark, as vivid as if it had been yesterday. So Cat then remembers the duel between Brandon Stark and Peter Baelish, when Peter begged her favor, but she gave it to her betrothed Brandon, pleading with Brandon to spare her childhood friend, and Brandon promised her he would. Boo. And, yeah, I know. And the <laughs> fight was over. That fight was over very fast, because Peter sucks, and <laughs> Brandon didn't. And, like, Brandon uh, was yelling at Peter to yield, but Littlefinger, like a dumb shit, wouldn't. And then the fight 
finally ended in the river because he Littlefinger was pushed back so far and Brandon, who was probably pretty frustrated by then, delivered a cut so deep the cat thought it was mortal. Good. Peter murmured, <laughs> cat, like the shittiest version of Rhaegar dying on the trident. And, and then it was done. And then that was the last time she had seen Peter until that time a few chapters ago that, that you guys covered so nicely. <sighs> yeah, it, it is shitty Rhaegar, right? Uh, he looked at her as he fell and murmured cat as the bright blood came flowing out between his mailed fingers. Keep her name out of your mouth. Yeah, right? God. Talk shit, get hit, little finger. You should. Just sat there and ate your green beans. Okay, I feel bad for uh, child little finger, but... I don't know. <laughs> so there's a lot of language here that is straight up rebellion parallels, right? Who would have thought... Uh, Eddard 10, preceding this chapter, literally begins framed in language and dreams of the rebellion, and it ends with Ned accepting that badge back from Robert, who he shouldn't be trusting, even if Robert had semi-good intentions, but mostly ascetic. Robert's presence still lingers in this chapter, right? Robert didn't get Lyanna, even though he won. Brandon didn't get Kat, even though he won. The language with Littlefinger falling to his knees is absolutely like Rhaegar in the Trident. Rubies flew like drops of blood from the chest of a dying prince, and he sank to his knees in the water, and with his last breath murmured a woman's name, romantic if not like poor man's Rhaegar. And, of course, in Ned 10, we have Robert disclosing his wistful, wasted dreams to Ned. Rhaegar won, damn him. I killed him, Ned. I drove the spike right through that black armor into his black heart, and he died at my feet. They made up songs about it, Yet somehow he still won. He has Liana now, and I have her. Of course, uh, had Robert been as ambitious and goal-oriented as Littlefinger, <laughs> Robert would have turned into the villain too, right? Like, that's the point. Littlefinger was this, but he actually got off his ass and, like, I don't know, snorted an Adderall and did something about it. And uh, he doesn't have Cat, right? Like, Brandon now has Cat in hell. Or wherever they are, I don't know. I guess not, because Kat's back on Earth. Never mind. Yeah, um, I mean, if she went, if she went down, she'd be joining Ned. Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe they'd fight over her. It could be good. Yeah, but she could choose mud. Brother she thing, mud. you know. I don't know. Yeah, probably. Yeah, and like Robert does in some ways, you know. To Cersei's story, he is the villain, right? It's it's where you look at yeah. it from. He ha he did become the villain without being motivated, and it's because he wasn't motivated to become better, to move on, right? The same way that mm -hmm. Littlefinger couldn't figure out how to move on, that he does become a villain. And in a way, he while not exactly a villain, he is part of what allows the kingdom to fall into the state that it's going to be in, doesn't notice what Littlefinger is doing. I don't know if he could have gotten to Lyanna in time or not, but she was always going to be dead, right? by that time right. but they're, they're two they're two different sides of yeah a coin or leaf or something <laughs> <laughs> well while Littlefinger recovered for a fortnight Kat was forbidden to see him but Liza helped nurse him back to health and mm. we might talk about that another time it's no. not it's not it's not good. Not a good scene. Liza was softer and shyer in those days. Littlefinger shooed Edmure away, not forgiving Edmure acting as Brandon's squire. 
which is like just such a big poor loser weenie move on Littlefinger's part. Yeah, like everyone told you, dude, don't do it. Um, and Admir's still being nice to you. Like no one else is being nice to you, dude. You do not have friends here anymore. Admir, I think would have if if Littlefinger had gotten to move on, he and Admir could have stayed friends. But <sighs> maybe. But anyway, soon after Peter recovered, he was sent away. And the sounds of the fight draw Kat out of her memory, where Braun is still doing great. Good for him. Um, but apparently all of this is very boring to Sweet Robin. Many of the lords also are just drinking, not paying attention, like, I don't know, a baseball game. Uh, but yep. Tyrion <laughs> is concentrating on the match. Vardis attempts to block a blow, but does poorly and ends up with a gash in his arm. He crashes into Alyssa's statue, rocking her, and then Braun goes for his sword arm. Which is so good. Like, he takes out, Braun takes out the most dangerous part of his opponent, um, and that allows him to win. Yes. Yeah. Thinking back to what you said, Eliana, about how we kind of see a lot of these similar elements in this fight later. Uh, obviously, the Oberyn in the mountain fight yes. really recalls some of these moves, in my opinion. I just, like, very similar, but opposite effect. The underdog in the fight does not win, haha. <laughs> For other reasons. And that's also yeah. Tyrion's trial by combat. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Does not turn out the same. And, you know, I love this move. It's it's a professional move. I used to do it on my dad when we would play lightsaber battle when we ate mm. cereal in the morning. Yeah. It was very important. Uh, today is May the 4th as we record this. So, you know, let's get it out there. I mean, my dad and I, you know, once you cut something with the spoon, you hit the arm with the spoon, you can't use that arm in the lightsaber battle anymore. It's over. Oh, yeah, yeah. You have to move to the other arm, your bad sword arm, and lightsaber with that arm until you get really killed. Damn, yeah, high stakes, high stakes uh, lightsaber fights. And you know what you were saying about the the fight between the Viper and the Mountain, right? Mm-hmm. Oberyn and the Mountain is, yes, it's also Tyrion's fight, I think Oberyn could have won it. You know, that's that's what's sad about it. He almost won it. But the problem is, Clint, please correct me if I'm wrong, which I probably <laughs> am. The problem is, you know, Oberyn is Tyrion's lawyer, but then all of a sudden he switches things up and starts trying to get yeah. a confession for a different yeah. case that many have considered is cold. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not who's on. That's not what he's on trial for here right now. And that does yep. him in. Yep, sure does. Sure does. Good call. Roderick, who is, of course, a knight and being a detective in this chapter and also a best friend, and also he has a side hustle as an esports commentator, Eliana would like us to know. <laughs> uh, while he's watching this, he's like, Vardis Egan is hurt. What can the man do? Cat <laughs> can see it on Roderick's her own, though. Amazing. Yeah, he is. He he's is. A and I do like man. that he's like, he's straight up a dude watching the Super Bowl right now. You know, he's like, yeah, oh, he's no, like... no, he's hurt. Oh, no, this doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah. He's like, and it's very obvious, right? Like, he, it's just one of those things where it's like, when somebody hits a home run, and then the guy in a stand goes, oh, that's a home run. It's like, no fucking shit. <laughs> well, we wouldn't know as the readers, right? Cat yeah, can see right. it. But Roderick's doing it for us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. He's streaming live. He is. So you don't have to. It's your boy, Roderick, in places I shouldn't be. Or he's doing it like as a radio program, like... NPR. I don't understand even sports commentating. That Roderick does, though. And he comments that it seems Vardis is slowing down. 
But Bran seems to be getting stronger, moving like uh, a cat, according to the text. Thinking face emoji. Hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, the moon and falcon Rondel gets sheared in half. That's symbolism. Probably. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Blind with arrogance as they were, even the knights and lords of the Vale could see what was happening below them, yet her sister could not. Enough, Sir Vardis, Lady Liza called down. Finish him now, my baby is growing tired. <sighs> Yikes. Yes, Liza. Yikes. Uh, Sir Vardis gives it a good effort to follow commands, but it all goes awry. His sword breaks on the statue of Alyssa, then Bronn shoves the weeping woman onto Vardis. Vardis Ooh. is trapped by Alyssa Aaron, and Bronn delivers the killing blow. That's a metaphor. Too blinded by grief and by Liza's machinations, both of the grieving mothers have doomed Vardis to his gallant, veiled death. Womp, womp, womp. Mm. Rip, Sir Vardis Egan, you never wanted this gig. <laughs> And then, like a lot of lawyers with shitty clients, the job ended up killing you. You tried. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that Liza's grieving, but yeah, allegedly. Right. I mean, she has some deep-seated scarring in her soul that she's probably grieving from, in my opinion. Yeah. In her own way. In, in, hmm. in a, a way. Well, it's quiet now, and Bronn spits out a tooth. Is it over, Mother? The Lord of the Eerie asked. No, Catelyn wanted to tell him. It's only now beginning. Yes, Liza said glumly, her voice as cold and dead as the captain of her guard. Ah, comparing again with our Ned chapter. The rebellion language is here. No, Ned said with sadness in his voice. Now it ends, but here for Cat. No, she thinks, it's only now beginning. We've been bringing up these elements of trial, injustice, and rebellion, and, you know, we haven't actually chatted about the big event that sparked the rebellion, which we're now kind of seeing a redux of here in the Vale in this ridiculous trial. How fitting that some 15, 20 years ago, John Aaron protected his wards in the Vale as Ares called for them to answer for a trial by fire which was seemingly and wildly unfair and uncalled for. He put both Brandon and Rickard through this trial, and now Liza's recreating her own version of this affair, right? Just as horrifying. The prospect is that if Tyrion's found guilty by this rando's sword movements, he's going out the moon door for funsies and dying. Yes. It's a fantastic connection, and yes, I, the language absolutely parallels one another, and I, I think it's meant to, right? Like, I mean, Catelyn's right, she knows how all the pieces are moving now, and that this is it, and that Tyrion, whether he escapes or dies, there's like, this is not how probability works, but in, in, I'm going to just say it, that there was, were like two out of three chances, and this was one of them, mm -hmm. and now it begins. The other one is she keeps him as prisoner, and then they're able to figure shit out, right? But Liza couldn't take that chance, so she's like, I gotta get rid of Tyrion one of two ways. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Lord Robert is all like, can I make the little man fly now? And Tyrion is like, not this one. Happy to leave in the turnip basket now. Honor be damned. I love that because it was called out before that he did not want to ride in it because he's like, I don't think Lord Tywin would want his son riding with turnips. And now he's just like, yeah, fuck it. We're going to dump the turnips. <laughs> <laughs> Done with this shit. 
And Liza is about to protest when Tyrion reminds her of the honor of House Aaron's words in regards to the outcome of this trial. And I'm just like, was Liza like really just about to deny Tyrion justice yes. there for yeah. a moment? Yeah, uh, the I, whole I, time. I, <laughs> I totally think that she would have, because um, you know she's not, she's obviously not above extrajudicial judicial killing, given that she murdered True. her husband. True. <laughs> the, the problem, Good point. the problem for her is that she like went out of her way to make this big fucking show and gather everyone here for the big match. And if she hadn't done that, if she had just done it like had a trial like in the morning with just her, and there wasn't anybody else to see the fight. Afterwards, if it's the same result, she probably throws Tyrion and Bronn out the moon door and just tells everyone that, well, Vardis won, but whoops, he died of his wounds right afterwards. So sad. Anyway, bye. It's over. <laughs> That's it. That's what she would have done, I think. Yeah. I don't know if she could have gotten away with it, though. Every time anyone's like a trial by combat, everyone whispers and like, oh my god, a trial by combat. Exciting, exciting. Everyone wants to go. It becomes like this big deal. Yeah, yeah. that's true. And this is like bloodlust for the veil, right? Like these men are also hankering for some battle, for anything, for like a breath of blood to hit their nostrils because they've been denied it this whole time. Yeah, it it reminds me of the original Karate Kid movie. I don't know if this is before oh, either time. It probably is, but like there's that scene it's where classic. everybody thinks Danny Larusso is not going to fight, and then there's like a whisper that wait, Danny Larusso's going to fight. And then the next person's like, Danny LaRusso's going to fight. And then everybody's like, Danny LaRusso is going to fight. And that's kind of like how trials by combat are. It is <laughs> like that. It is like that. And everyone's going to show up there. You know, everyone's going right. to be there. Watch that go down. So there is also like, you know, I think you're right. Liza would have done it. If oh, yeah. Tyrion, Tyrion's smart enough, you know, he, he's a smart guy. He could be his own lawyer with the, the kinds with the cloth suits, probably. <laughs> he could have gone. I could see Tyrion going to law school. Oh, um, totally. But there is irony. Like maybe the point isn't that, in terms of the house, Aaron words as high as honor. Honor maybe isn't that high. Maybe it isn't something to aspire to. The books show us a lot of different kinds of honor, right? And that the honor from the social norms of Westeros is maybe amongst the basis. It's like maybe the lowest form of like any standard to measure yourself by and that it, it, it we see a lot of people who dishonor themselves for a greater good right and that ends up in some ways being the greatest honor right like ned dishonoring himself to save john mm -hmm. and later sansa and mm -hmm. the errands may seem like they have put honor first but in practice as we see it, it kind of feels like a farce and arguably perhaps it runs contrary to house tully um because I think there's a reason why in the Tully House words they put honor last. It's family first, then duty, then honor. And that's also what Ned did, and it is clearly not what Liza did. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> honor was the only thing she like just barely kinda held on to, but the purest veneer of it. <sighs> Never learned that word, Liza. She's like, Missed I don't out know. on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I got through family, I got to the duty part, but I tuned out at the honor part. Mm. I'm so sorry. <laughs> So sorry. And again, Sweet Robin is not exactly inheriting the best features, right, uh, from his mother. He begins to throw a tantrum because he doesn't get to make the little man fly. Big chaotic energy over here. Huge chaotic energy. 
Oh my god, so much. I, I love all of the Veil chapters so much, if only because they hammer home that I made the right call when I decided not to have kids. <sighs> if my kid was sweet, Robin, I don't know. That's a gamble. Like if, if your kid yeah. is sweet, Robin, like, that's on you as a parent, you know, as we're seeing with Liza, like, that was on her. That's true. That's true. It is a lot on her, but... I think your kids would be better than that. Mm, Maybe. I don't know. Let's not risk it. I mean, we won't see. Here. So yeah, we're not yeah. going to see, but yeah. No um, risking it for this bisking it. No way. Nah. Um, yeah, big chaotic energy across the whole Veil thing in general. I know. And Liza finally comes to, right? She agrees to release Tyrion and Bronn, that the gods have seen fit to proclaim him innocent, probably because he is innocent. And she commands their release with supplies, weapons, the whole shebang. Wait for it. To the high road. Cat Cat and Tyrion have already been on it. What a death sentence, right? A second death sentence. Uh, But Tyrion is great. He does not miss a beat here, and he recovers it with his mocking wit. Take it away, Clint. The high road, Tyrion Lannister said. Liza allowed herself a faint, satisfied smile. It was another sort of death sentence, Catelyn realized. Tyrion Lannister must know that well. Yet, the dwarf favored Lady Aaron with a mocking bow. As you command, my lady, he said, I believe we know the way. Boom. <sighs> you know, he comes out of it with his own mini veil army. You may not like him, but you gotta admit he has style. I find myself increasingly fond again of Tyrion in these chapters. Right. Uh, right, it, it, yeah. Uh, it's hard because you're supposed to be. I mean, it's George's fave. Of course you want to like Tyrion. It's one of the best. It's one of the faves. He's clever and sharp and hysterical. And yeah, he's shitty as he goes along, but everyone's got a little bit of Tyrion in them, right? In our hearts, that little bit of bullied nerd that uh, wants to just be mocking and sarcastic and biting all the time. And I don't know. I really appreciate him in these chapters. I think that part of the reason why he's... George's favorite character is the parts where he thinks you're supposed to like dislike him later mm-hmm. on where he becomes shitty and, and those darker parts and he's excited I think where he's going to take Tyrion's character and really dive into that but yeah I mean like at the beginning he's portrayed like so fun right and we've been mm-hmm. seeing him through Catelyn's eyes and Catelyn's like I don't know Tyrion might be legit yeah yeah I I, I mean it's just such a great ending for a chapter and I like I imagine Tyrion sort of winking at the camera and then the deal with it sunglasses come down over his face as he walks out and then like <laughs> there's a random explosion behind him for no reason. Um, it's just such like a fuck you ending that I, I I can't get over how good it is. The explosion is Robert Aaron in the background. Oh, there the you go. <laughs> That's the explosion. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And like it does feel, you know, it's it's a great mic drop as he exits and he does it so well and I mean I kind of wonder right you we've been talking about the godless gods would maybe the gods really did show Tyrion's innocence though obviously it's a bit of luck and a lot of bronze skill because clearly he doesn't survive the next trial but whatever he's he is given his sentence right his sentencing happens literally right after his mm-hmm. his trial which doesn't always happen. Very, very efficient system here. Uh, Tyrion <laughs> does survive the high road, though. Coming back to this metaphor of the high road versus the low road, right? Uh, that we discussed before. And 
Tyrion has in many ways taken the high road throughout his entire debacle in the Vale. At the Eyrie, he has tried to keep it above board, done everything by the law because he knows that he has to. And, you know, it's when he's on the high road, the literal high road this time, that he starts to wander off it, the metaphorical one as he starts to promise revenge uh, to gain that mini Veil army and promising the Veil of Aaron to them. Yeah, that's a yeah. good point. We definitely will have a return of Tyrion to something with the Veil, maybe not to the Veil necessarily, but especially with Sansa being so closely connected now to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they do reunite, I imagine the Veil may be a topic that comes up between the two of them. Maybe he will mm-hmm. offer her some of his own thoughts about how he would like to see the Veil progress. Perhaps. Great. Perhaps. Well, I think that about wraps up our episode for Catalan 7. Clint, I was so excited to have you on to get this lawful perspective from you, and you did not <laughs> disappoint me. Thank you for providing us with your fashion hour, as well as some really, yes. really, really intensive speculation about, you know, the, the night to lawyer idea is just so good. And I think it does inform the plot a little bit here. This this trial was bullshit, so I, we couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> No, I, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me on. As I said, uh, it is an honor and a privilege to be a girl gone canon. Oh my God, a it's family official. Family duty honor. Oh my <laughs> God. Uh, well, again, very blessed to have you on. And please tell us all where we can find you on the internet one last time. You can find me on Twitter at Clint W. On Twitter, you can... Also find my blog at lawsoficeandfire.com. But I especially invite you to check out the Learned Hands podcast. We have had a lot of fun talking a lot about these issues. We had an episode with Stanford Fraser last year about Tyrion's trials in general. And then we've had lots of episodes about all of your favorite characters and some of your least favorite characters and how they um, invoke these sorts of legal and ethical and... uh, I don't know, uh, good government dilemmas and really <laughs> questions about justice, which is obviously a key uh, feature of the, the story in general. So Learned Hands, which you can find at um, any of your podcast platforms, or you can find out more as to how to uh, interact more with uh, the Learned Hands podcast at our website at westerosbar.org. Um, we have a system where if you make a donation to a pre-approved legal charity, some great legal charities, you get all sorts of benefits and extra content and all that kind of stuff. So check it out. Yes, as members, uh, I know Eliana and I must say it comes with high recommendations, very high recommendations. Yes. There's a Thank lot you. There's a lot that goes on in the association. A little <laughs> bit of shenanigans, but a, a lot of other good stuff too. You know? Lots of shenanigans. <laughs> Lots of shenanigans. We're getting up to the time, I think, when we need to pay our yearly dues, or or <laughs> I do, um, for my own membership. Yeah, we're, we're going to be doing a, a membership drive um, again. When we did the Horny Jail episode, which we've talked about before, and you guys were so such a big part of it, that was a, a thing that we promised if we got $3,000 in donations, so we're going to try and up that this year. Awesome. Exciting. Amazing. Well, we'll, we will put these links down in the description below. So please make sure to go check out Learned Hands or uh, the Laws of Ice and Fire vlog. Yes. 
And of course, you all already know this, but you can find us on social media at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter. Or if you have a question, or perhaps would like to ask us what strange food from Westeros we would eat, you can also send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Be sure you're subscribed to us on a podcast platform streaming near you, like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Audible, Amazon, Stitcher, uh, you name it, we're there. I think we're even on Pandora. Uh, check us out online. Just Google us. You'll find us. I'm learning something new about my podcast every day. Um, and of course, you can always find us on Patreon. All patrons, $5 and up, get also special bonus episodes every month. This month, again, we are going to go to the free cities once more. And we also have uh, some other stuff for other tiers. Yeah, if you're in the Thunder tier or above, you have access to our private Discord server. If you have not heard anything about it and you are already a Thunder patron, hit us a message. We'll get you in. It's a secret club and it's fun. It's not that much of a secret because I'm telling you right now. But if you want to come join the secret club, that's patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N. And as always, thank you so much for listening in to us with our very wonderful special guest, As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. We will see you next week, and maybe we'll be slightly less lawful. (laughs) Probably. I hope not. Godless and lawless. (laughs) Guns out, suns out. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye.